Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Easter is a time of celebration, whether it's for religious purposes or a reason to gift your child with an Easter basket. Most people put on their Sunday best, take the kids Easter egg hunting, and spend the rest of the day with family and friends, dyeing eggs and eating a traditional Easter dinner, full of homemade biscuits and roasted ham. But today we have a darker tale of a case that devastated the entire country, known as the Easter Sunday Massacre. On March 30th of 1975, 42-year-old Leonard Ruber and his wife, 38-year-old Alma, packed up their eight children to head to his mother, 65-year-old Charity's home for an Easter egg hunt. Their children in order by age were 17-year-old Leonard III, 16-year-old Michael, 15-year-old Thomas, 13-year-old Carol, 12-year-old Anne, 11-year-old David, 9-year-old Teresa, and 4-year-old John. Once they got there, the kids' hunt for their eggs began in the front yard of their grandmother's house. Leonard noticed his brother James was nowhere to be seen, but his mother Charity informed him James had been out the previous night and was upstairs sleeping it off. His brother was known for this type of thing, so Leonard just brushed it off and called the children inside to begin making sloppy joes for them, alongside his mother and wife Alma. Around 4 p.m., James had finally woken up and he went down to greet his family in the kitchen. With him, he brought his fully loaded 357 Magnum, 22 caliber handguns, and a rifle. His rifle was on his back and revolvers tucked in his belt. Before any words could be exchanged, he aimed his gun at his brother he believed had it all and shot him in the head and chest. He then shot Alma twice, and when his mother Charity lunged towards him, he shot her in the chest and head. He turned to his nephew, David, and nieces, Teresa and Carol, who were in the kitchen and pulled the trigger six more times. He then made his way to the living room and killed his last remaining victims, Leonard III, Michael, Thomas, John, and Anne. He had murdered them all in cold blood in a matter of five minutes without even giving it a second thought. Each victim would later be found with two gunshot wounds, one that was used to disable them and one in the head or heart to finish them off. Jesus, that came out of nowhere. It's like he was just waiting upstairs for his entire family to be inside together. Yeah, it's hard to believe that he had even just woken up. He probably was just waiting for them to come inside. Did they catch him after this mass shooting? Well, James didn't just flee the scene like most killers do. Instead, he sat in the house for three hours before phoning the police to let them know what he did. When police entered, they said there was blood everywhere so much that it was dripping from the floorboards into the basement. The scene had resembled an animal slaughterhouse. It was reported that he had shot at least a total of 35 rounds, and the investigators collected all four weapons used. James didn't put up a fight either. He was waiting at the front door upon their arrival. What happened that day not only shocked the small community of Hamilton, but no one who knew James thought he would be capable of such a heinous crime. After all, He was known as the perfect neighbor, being quiet and unassuming. It's always the quiet ones. Those are the ones you should be the nicest to on your way to get your mail. (laughs) (laughs) What do we know about James that could have contributed to this? James Urban Rupert was born on March 29th of 1931 to Leonard Sr. and Charity Rupert. 
Growing up, James was raised in an abusive house with a father who had a violent temper, followed up with little to no affection towards his sons, and his mother who constantly reminded him that he was a mistake and he should have been a girl. His father would pass away in 1947 when James was 12 and Leonard Jr. was 14. Leonard Sr. was not missed, but because of his passing, Leonard Jr. had to step up and become the quote-unquote man of the house. James was known to have poor grades, few friends, and was quite smaller than his older brother, being only 5 foot 6 inches tall and 135 pounds. James even tried committing suicide when he was 16 years old due to his unhappy home by hanging himself with sheets. Once that didn't work, James gave up and accepted his accustomed life. Well, his parents sound like real winners. I understand that it can feel hopeless sometimes when you feel stuck in an unhappy home. But please believe me that suicide is never the answer. Never the answer. And I'd like to remind people saying someone chose suicide is never an okay thing to say. At that moment, that person feels like it's their only solution. Yeah. So at least he had his big brother though, right? Well, even though his older brother Leonard was supposed to be the closest thing to a father figure for James, he picked on him every chance he had. This caused James to have a lot of resentment towards him, and it only grew as the brothers entered adulthood. As an adult, James had flunked out of college after two years and had little going for himself. Unlike his brother who excelled in sports in college and got his degree in electrical engineering. That degree led to a good job with General Electric, which allowed him to purchase his first home. And finally, the biggest blow of all was when Leonard married one of the few girlfriends James ever had, Alma, and had eight children with her. Meanwhile, James' life was in shambles. By 41 years old, he was unemployed, living at home with his emotionally abusive mother, and seriously in debt. He had borrowed money from his mother and brother to put into stocks, only for the market to crash in 1973 and lose it all. He spent most of his time drinking at bars and losing jobs. Eventually, his mother had had enough of his inability to do better and threatened to evict him. Okay, that's pretty messed up. Life is hard enough with a family that loves and supports you. Everyone that was supposed to look out for him abused him. Yeah, his brother could have done better and his mother could have loved him a little harder. But by 41 years old, he could have chosen to make better choices for his life, including what he did on Easter. Absolutely. It still is not okay to murder your family, especially those innocent children. Were there any signs that he was about to snap? One month prior to the shooting, it was said by peers that he had been asking about silencers for his firearms. On March 29th, the day before that tragic Easter Sunday, was James' birthday. Witnesses had seen him at the Great Miami River, located in Hamilton, shooting at cans. He was spotted later that night at the 19th Hole Cocktail Lounge, and that's where employee Wanda Bishop recalled James seemed depressed while he talked about the demands of his mother and her threat to evict him. He had told Wanda that he, and I quote, needed to solve the problem. Around 11 p.m. he left the bar, only to return shortly after. Wanda asked him if he had solved the problem, to which James responded, no, not yet. He ended up staying and drinking until the bar closed their doors at 2.30 a.m. This would be the last time James would be seen as a free man. Okay, so definitely premeditated. He planned it out 
and practiced. Oh, yeah. It was definitely heavy on his mind. Steph will take us back to the day of the murders after this short break. Once arrested, James was very uncooperative and refused to answer any questions asked of him. He had a plan to plead insanity and go into the system until he was cured and upon release inherit a $300,000 inheritance. He was charged with 11 counts of aggravated homicide for the murders of his brother, mother, sister-in-law, nieces, and nephews. The first trial he had was held in Hamilton and was determined by a panel of three judges. There, he was sentenced to life in prison for 11 counts of murder. Due to James' defense team believing there was no way he could get a fair trial in his hometown, a mistrial was declared and he was scheduled to be retried in Finlay, Ohio, which was 125 miles north of Hamilton. His second trial began in June of 1975, and the prosecutor's evidence against him included the witnesses that had seen him at the river engaging in target practice. They also brought up his inquiry about silencers for his gun collection and the conversation he shared with Wanda regarding his mother's unattainable expectations and his need to fix the problem. He was yet again found guilty, and one month later, James was sentenced again, but this time for 11 consecutive life sentences. This guy had a whole game plan ready to plead insanity. I feel like that's what most people go to these days. Some of you aren't insane, you just make poor, inexcusable choices. Social sciences are so subjective, so people think they can manipulate the system. It's actually pretty hard to trick a true expert, though. His plan totally backfired. He went from one life sentence to 11 with that retrial. So he got over 275 years in jail, which he deserved. So this guy is done done. Well, this wasn't the end of James, though, because in 1982, almost seven years later, he appealed his conviction and was given another new trial. James had a new defense attorney this time, Hugh D. Holbrook and he was convinced his client was insane. He was so convinced that he hired and personally paid for psychiatrists and psychologists from all over the country to give their expert opinions. And his investment in James' insanity plea would eventually pay off. On July 23rd of 1982, a new three-judge panel would find James guilty of only two counts of first-degree murder for the death of his mother and brother, but by reason of insanity, was found not guilty for the remaining nine counts of murder. Capital punishment had been abolished in America between 1972 and 1976, so since the Easter Day Massacre took place in 1975, James was able to avoid the death penalty for his crimes. With that new law in place, he ended up receiving one life sentence each for the two counts of first-degree murder, to be served consecutively. Well, I hate that he didn't get his original sentencing, but two life sentences still means he's not getting out. This guy is not insane, though. He was just jealous, bitter, and lazy. His childhood was rough, yes, but therapy is a hell of a source to utilize. I agree. He should have left his abusive family behind and made a life for himself on his own. What he did was inexcusable, regardless of his childhood. So I'm interested in knowing what happened to the house. Well, one year after the massacre in 1976, the city opened the house up to the public to auction off all the remaining contents that belonged to James and Charity. 
Shortly after that, the house was cleaned, recarpeted, and rented out. The new family that took residence there stated that they had no idea the house had a dark history. No one had made them aware of the murders that took place there when they moved in. As if the physical evidence is lurking in the house, there are permanent bloodstains in the basement that leaked from the floorboards above. The family even claimed to have dealt with some paranormal activity, like unexplained voices and noises. They talked about lights flickering on and off, doors slamming, and thudding footsteps were often heard coming from the first floor where the murders took place. This became so disturbing for them, they ended up moving out of the house. For years after, families had been in and out, all reporting some form of paranormal activity in the house. Well, would you expect anything less? My God. I assume any place is haunted if someone died there, let alone 11 people whose lives were taken way too soon. Right? Not surprising at all. So where's James now? James Urban Rupert is still incarcerated at the Allen Oakwood Correctional Institution in Lima, Ohio. In June of 1995, the State Parole Board granted him a hearing at the age of 61 to see if he was eligible, but he was denied. His next hearing was 20 years later, in April of 2015, but even with all of the time that had passed, he was still considered dangerous, and he was once again denied parole. James held the title in the top 10 deadliest shootings in American history, but was topped by the Virginia Tech shooting that took place in 2007 while he was incarcerated. As for the resting place of the victims taken that day, the bodies of Charity, Leonard Jr., Alma, Leonard III, Michael, Thomas, John, David, Teresa, Carol, and Anne are all buried in Arlington Memorial Gardens in Cincinnati, Ohio. More recently, the home their lives were taken in was unoccupied for several years, but the new residents currently living there reported nothing out of the ordinary. It's suggested that after 40 years, the echoes of that devastating day that not only made a mark on the town, but the house itself, has finally lifted, and the spirits of the Rupert family have finally found peace. I hope so too. I've never heard of a haunting stopping on its own with no action taken to bring them peace, though. Well, you never know. Stranger things have happened. It's pretty clear what drove James Rupert to that fateful day in 1975. Instead of working on bettering himself, the only solution he deemed fitting was to annihilate his entire family in the midst of a family celebration. We don't know why he chose to kill his sister-in-law and her children, but we can only assume he was upset they existed at all or was faced with a life he and Alma could have had had their relationship worked out. Regardless, his choices left a mark on the small town of Hamilton, Ohio. The residents there are reminded of what took place one Easter every time they drive past that little two-story home on 635 Miter Avenue. The holiday blues can come in many forms, whether it's anxiety, depression, or PTSD. To help, there's a 24-hour hotline called SAMHSA National Helpline. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration offers a confidential, free, 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year information service in English and Spanish for individuals and family members facing mental and or substance use disorders. 
This service provides referrals to local treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. For more information, contact them at 1-800-622-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our bonus Conjure tip of the week? Today I want to talk to you about the holiday Easter itself and the pagan history behind it. Ostara is said to be the ancient Celtic and Germanic goddess of spring. Her holiday is celebrated around the spring equinox every year. As legend has it, she transformed a bird into a hare out of compassion when his wings were damaged beyond repair by the winter frost. The hare responded by laying colored eggs for her as a gift of gratitude. You may think dying eggs is child's play, but in this Ostara tradition, the eggs are a sign of fertility and abundance. Draw sigils or runes with white crayon on your eggs for what you hope to bring into your life this year. Then dip them into your favorite color dyes. Yeah, take this opportunity to let go of the things in your life that no longer serve you and visualize the positive things you want more of. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.